Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chronicle A's beat writer Susan Slusser, and today our guest is former A's catcher Landon Powell, who as part of our A's Gone By series talks to us about what he's been doing since his Major League career ended, coming up next on A's Plus. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing since you left baseball. It, it, you know, a lot of guys struggle initially as they're trying to figure out, do I keep playing? Um, do I try to hang on? What am I going to do? What, what was your path like as things were kind of coming to a close for you with baseball? So for me, the end of my career, um, you know, I had, I had signed an arbitration deal with the A's um, and I went to spring training with them and um you know, Anthony Recker was a young catcher that was had was coming on and had been playing really good the last couple of years. And, you know, his minimum salary would have been cheaper than, than what the A's were going to have to pay me by several hundred thousand dollars. So the A's uh, traded me or moved me, wa- waiver move, and uh, the Astros picked me up. So went over to the Astros. Um, I got sent to AAA there. I made the all-star team actually that year in AAA. And I was most likely getting ready to get called up. Um, and I actually tore my calf muscle right, right like at the All Star game, right before the All Star game. And so, the day I don't know, it was probably two or three games after the All Star break was over, the catcher for the Astros, Jason Castro, got hurt, uh, hurt his knee. And so I was hitting, you know, three fifteen at the time in, in AAA and had been doing really good and was a had had been in the big leagues for the previous three years. So I was the guy that should have gone up, but I had just hurt my calf and I couldn't play. So they actually called up my backup catcher in AAA, and he ended up staying in the big leagues the rest of the year. So it was like one of those just bad timing. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and got injured at the wrong time. But um, So I had a good year with Houston. I liked the organization. I, you know, I had a successful season. That offseason is when my twin daughters were born, and my daughter Izzy passed away when she was five months old, which was she passed away at the end of January right before spring training. And um, – I had not decided if I was going to play. I had signed a free agent deal with the Mets, but I, I was not sure if I was going to be able to play. Um, I hadn't been able to work out all offseason. I was literally sleeping on a hospital cot, and um, I spent five months in a hospital room with my daughter. And so baseball was like the last thing on my mind. And after she passed away, you know, the spring training with the Mets started about 12 days later. And, you know, I, I did a lot of soul searching and praying and talked to my family and friends and I decided to try to go give it one more run to go play. And I'll be honest, my heart probably wasn't in it, Susan. I mean, yeah. my, my wife and I were devastated. Um, our two young children, my son at that time was uh, almost four. And my, my other daughter was you know five months old. She was Izzy's twin. So my wife was here in South Carolina um, trying to grieve losing our daughter and also raising two young children while I was leaving to go play baseball. And it just – it just didn't feel right. It didn't make sense. And it was just a really tough time of our life. So um, I played the first, you know, half of the season. 
reluctantly and, and felt like going home every day and, you know, contemplated retirement probably 50 different times. And, um, you know, most players that I played with have a really hard time hanging it up. That's one of the hardest things they do is decide is make that decision. Okay. I don't have it anymore. You know, the game has passed me by and, you know, I was reaching that time in my career. Um, but I feel grateful that I didn't have that internal struggle of when to stop and when not, because for me, you know, I, I basically had an out. I had a family situation. I had my wife and my kids needed me, and it made it a whole lot easier for me to say, you know what, I'm done. And I hung my cleats up and I went home. And a lot of guys I, did, I, I, you know, I know and I played with, they they really struggle with that decision, and they grind it out maybe a couple more years than they should. And uh, for me, I was able to rip that Band-Aid off and say, you know what, I'm, I'm proud of my career. I'm proud of what I've, I accomplished, and I'm ready to go home and start the next chapter. Yeah, that's, I mean, horrible circumstances, obviously. Um, and if you don't mind talking a little bit about Izzy, uh, I, I was following it from afar. You guys set up a Facebook page, um, which I think a lot of Ace fans were um, also paying attention to. When I Izzy and Ellie were born, um, twins, prematures, as a lot of twins are. Um, uh, and I, sh did she have problems kind of right away? What happened? So she was born, um, pre both my, my, was, they were twins, and um, my wife went into labor about six weeks early, um, and we didn't know why, that was you know, rare, but they were born, and um, Ellie, our daughter, who's now seven, um, she was born first, and she was um, relatively healthy, she was five pounds, three ounces, she looked healthy, her vitals were good, but she, she needed a little bit of help breathing, and she needed a little bit of help with food, but otherwise was strong. Uh, Izzy was born second, two minutes later, and she came out and visibly you could tell that she wasn't as healthy. Her skin was more purple. Um, she was thinner. Um, um, just, she weighed four pounds, eight ounces. So she was smaller than Ellie. Um, she just didn't look as healthy. Um, but when they took her and did all of her vitals and, um, I mean, she was good. She was breathing on her own. She was eating on her own. So, actually, when they went in the NICU, Izzy was the stronger of the two babies. Oh, wow. Um, but Izzy had a rash on her body, and it, it, that was the big concern, is that there was some kind of, uh, they call it peaky eye, I think is what they call it, but it's like a, a rash that you know, shows from under your skin. And a lot of times it has to do with your blood or platelets or things like that. So, um that was a concern. And as time went on, Ellie was getting better and Izzy started to deteriorate. So uh, Ellie got off the breathing support and got off the, the, the food help. And, and Izzy all of a sudden needed help with breathing and needed an NG tube to help her with food. Um, so, you know, fast forward another couple weeks and Ellie went home and was good. And Izzy was now needing transfusions. Her platelet levels were too low and couldn't sustain. She had a pick line. Um, and they had no diagnosis for her. They kept doing all kinds of different things to try to figure out what was wrong and everything they looked into, they could rule out. So they, you know, we're watching our daughter slowly get worse and, and get into some real danger areas. And we had no clue why. And the doctors couldn't tell us why. Um, so we took her and we moved her, um, to Cincinnati children's hospital, which was, you know, at that time, the leading children's hospital in the country, or one of at least, and 
um, they had a, one of the leading BMT specialists in the country, um, Dr. Filipovich. And so she deals with any kind of BMT stands for bone marrow transplant, but any kind of bone marrow issues or blood disorders, leukemias and all those kind of things. So uh, within two days of being in Cincinnati, um, she diagnosed my daughter Izzy with a disease called HLH, which uh, is hemophatocytic lymphocytic histiocytosis. And basically what that is is an immune disorder that her immune system tries to attack her her blood from the inside out. Oh. And so, like, for me, I have an autoimmune liver disease, mm-hmm. which I was diagnosed with right before my rookie year in Oakland, where my immune system tries to attack my liver every day. Um, for Izzy, her immune system was attacking her bone marrow. And it starts with the weakest, which are your NG cells, and then it goes to your platelets, and then it goes to your white blood cells. You know, and then the last thing that attacks is your red blood cells, which carry the oxygen, and and you eventually pass away. So um, there was no, you know, there's no cure for it. Well, there's no medication or anything they can give you to cure it, but they can give you a bone marrow transplant, and that's the only success they've ever had with it. So it's a, it's a, there's a high rate of, of terminally ill kids that get it. And um, so for us, what we were trying to accomplish is to get her strong enough that she could have a bone marrow transplant. And, um, you know, they gave her, man, she had a hundred transfusions and, um, she had, you know, she had pick lines and Broviacs that were right into her heart. And, um, she did, I think she had 13 surgeries. She had eight, eight weeks of chemo. Um, this little girl went through the absolute ringer and, you know, we were doing everything we could to try to save her life. And she was a fighter and she was strong and she was tough as nails. She wasn't a baby. And I, I lived on that BMT floor for five months in the hospital. And I got to see all kinds of families and kids that were going through similar things. And, you know, I, it was just apparent to me how tough Izzy was that she, she, you know, they would come in and stick her with a needle to, inject a medicine or to draw her blood to do something or whatever and she wouldn't blink i mean she was so tough but um she just you know she was too small and, and too young to be able to deal with what her you know what this this disease was doing to her body and um so she she didn't make it and um you know it's one of those things i would never wish wish on my worst enemy um but uh, my wife and i are very grateful that we had her for five months and we got to spend every day with her and you know we miss her every day. We have pictures of her all around our house and mm. we talk about her with our kids and, you know, she has a twin. And so our twin Ellie, you know, her and he, she talks about Izzy all the time. And I think you can feel Ellie can feel Izzy's spirit on a daily basis. And so um, it's one of those things that anyone that has twins, they'll understand. And so we get to see that pretty regularly with our other daughter. And um, so it's, it's obviously a terrible thing and it's a heartbreaking thing, but um, it's made my wife and I stronger and, our family stronger and it gives us a perspective about our world and we understand that it's a broken world and it's it's things always don't work out the way you want but it makes you value the good days even more and for my wife and I you know we we love our kids as much as any parents possibly could because of what we've been through and um we try to cherish every moment we have with them oh man it's just dreadful you guys had to go through that in your family um I know you did have Izzy's organs donated? I know you're a big believer in organ donation. Do you know um, where they, where the d- donations went at all? Have you had any contact with any families or anything like that? 
No, we have not. And and I so I was involved in organ donation before Izzy got mm-hmm. sick uh, because of my liver disease, and um, so I started getting involved in do, uh, organ donation awareness and working with the DMV and, and Donate Life around the country. So um, when Izzy got sick, that was something that we obviously, you know, believed in and wanted to make sure that even if she, you know, uh, even if she couldn't beat her disease, that maybe something she could do could, to help other lives out there. And so, yeah, we did, we donated her organs and tissue. Um, and I think, you know, they don't tell us what they did with them, but they did tell us that they were donated. And we just pray that someone, you know, someone's child was, was benefited because of her. So I'm sure that that's the case. Absolutely. Now you mentioned your own um, diagnosis. Uh, I remember that pretty clearly uh, because it was right at the start of your rookie year, right? You were, you were in the hospital uh, for, for a while that off season um, with uh, autoimmune hepatitis. How, how did that get diagnosed? I remember you have an uncle who also has a similar autoimmune disorder, correct? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny you know, 2009 was very similar to 2013 when my daughter passed away as far as the way my off-season went and being prepared for spring training and things like that. So, you know, 2013, obviously sleeping in the, in the hospital every night and being with my daughter, I wasn't able to do baseball activity or, or be in shape or be ready. And, you know, that, that obviously that had an effect on me when I went to spring training. The, the Mets were great and Terry Collins was great. And I actually was the last guy cut in spring training. So they gave me, gave me every opportunity to get in shape and make the team. Um, but it was just too little time, too late. Um, 2009 was very similar. I mean, I had been training and working out all off season. I, I, you know, I just overcome three different knee injuries in the minor leagues, and you know, I had been making minor league all star teams every year, and, and I had been, uh, you know, I, I would think the A's were were happy and with how I was progressing and how I was playing, and you know, I kept hearing that I was going to be, you know, getting called up to the big leagues anytime, and then I tore my ACL in, in Double A, and then the next year I came back and. You know, I'm being told I'm going to get to the big leagues real soon. I tear, you know, tear my knee up again. So things just kept happening. So going into that off season, 2000, the fall of 2008, leading into the spring of 2009, you know, I basically said that, you know, I'm 25, 26 years old. You know, I, I got to, this is it. Like I, it's make or break time. I got to get there. I got to, I got to break through and, and get past all these injuries. So I had killed myself that off season. Like I had, I was working out five days a week and, you know, two or three hour days. And it was the hardest amount of time I had worked on my body, like trying to get in physical good shape. And that doesn't, that, those hours that I'm talking about don't count my baseball activity. That's just in the gym and stuff. So, um, I was in great shape. I really felt strong about where I was. And so my, my wife and I went with a bunch of our friends, um, on a trip to Jamaica. Uh, there were seven couples They were all former college teammates and, and several of them were major league players like Kevin Melillo, Steven Tollison, Brian Busher. These are all guys that played in the major leagues, you know, somewhere. And so we went to Jamaica, and while I was in Jamaica, I got sick. I, I was, I was lightheaded. My skin was turning yellow. I was having a hard time eating, and, and no one really knew why. And uh, it was, I just felt terrible. I couldn't eat much. Um, I was, I was pretty much eating tums for every meal. <laughs> so came back to South Carolina um, after our trip was over, and I went to the doctor, and they did some blood work on me, and my liver enzymes were, were elevated, but they didn't really tell me why or what was going on. They, they wanted to set me up with a. A, a, gastroenterolog- a gastroenterologist uh, to get some more checkups done. So um, about two days later, I went to the gym. I was waiting on my appointment. I, I think my appointment was in a week or so, but you know, I wasn't going to stop working out because spring training was only a month away. So I went to the gym. I was working out. I was jumping rope, uh, getting ready for my workout. That's how I warmed up every day was I jumped a lot, a lot of rope and um, I had to keep my 
had to keep my feet quick so Ray Fossey would still compliment me on my footwork, you know. Um, so I was about a minute and a half into my jumping rope, and um, I got lightheaded and started seeing black spots. And the next thing I know, I wake up, and there's a bunch of people standing around me. Uh, so I, I passed out, and I went to convulsions. They said they said I, I basically had like a seizure. And um, when I came to, I, I, I was sitting up against a wall, and the EMS was there, and um, so they rushed me to the hospital and I was admitted to the hospital. Um, I stayed in the hospital for about a week. So they, they didn't know what was wrong with me at first. Uh, they were doing all kinds of blood work and tests. And, and the biggest thing they could find out is that the doctor came in and he said, you know, your normal liver enzymes, your AST and your ALT, which are normal, normal liver, liver enzymes that everyone has, they're supposed to be below 40. And, um, you go in liver failure when they get to like a thousand and my liver enzymes were 1700 and 1500. So I was, I was in liver failure. Um, and I don't drink and I didn't smoke and I didn't, I mean, I I wasn't a party guy. I never did any of that stuff. So they kept asking me what kind of drugs I was using or what kind of like alcohol. It's like, listen, I don't drink. I don't, we went to Jamaica for seven days and I never drank alcohol, you know, like I didn't do that stuff. Um, and so, they started doing all kinds of tests and diagnostics on me and they just couldn't figure out what was going on. They, they, they were giving me some pretty alarming things. Like they thought I had pancreatic cancer or liver cancer, but every time they'd go and check one of those, those diagnoses that they would come back and say, no, no, that's not what it is. So, um, they asked, started asking me about family history and, and I had a, an uncle, um, who had an autoimmune liver disease. It's called autoimmune hepatitis. And, and he's, he's not, he's actually, you know, in South Carolina, you speak about your family differently, but he's actually a second cousin. He's my, he's my dad's first cousin, okay. but he was older than me. So I called him uncle. Um, you know, he's, he's 20 something years older than me. So, um, but he's technically my second cousin and I called him uncle. So anyway, he had an autoimmune, autoimmune disease. So we told the doctor and then they did a liver biopsy on me and, and then did a bunch of testing. And then they came back a couple of days later and they diagnosed me with autoimmune hepatitis. I had the same thing he has. And so it's a, you know, my immune system tries to kill my liver every day, and it's, there's no cure for it. Um, you can medicate it and control it. So um, they started pumping me full of prednisone to reduce the inflammation of my liver, and they started giving me another drug called uh, Imuran, which is an immunosuppressant, and it keeps my immune system from attacking my liver. And the balance of those two drugs, you can control, you can control the disease, but you have to take that medicine every day for the rest of your life, wow. um, which, you know, Obviously, it was a really heartbreaking thing to hear that I had this disease and that it was chronic, that there was no cure. But it was also a relief to know that it was treatable, that I could control it, and that as long as I took my medication and I took, and I, I took care of myself and I didn't drink and I didn't do a bunch of stuff like that, that I could still live a healthy, sustainable life. Um, at some point, I'll need a liver transplant um, because of the disease. And so that that's really what spurred my, my, um, my charity work with Donate Life was – I started to realize how important organ donation was, and it's something that will probably save my life at some point. There, there are millions of people across our country that are waiting liver, that are waiting transplants, all kinds yeah. of transplants. So, um, that 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 started that. But you know, that all happened, Susan, like the first or second week of January. And spring training, I think it was like February 10th. Crazy. So um, after I got that liver biopsy, uh, the doctor told me I couldn't do any baseball activity for three weeks. I couldn't lift weights. I couldn't run. I couldn't hit. Because it, your liver doesn't have nerve endings, but you can bleed out very easily. So if I was to fall on it or to you know, drop a weight or to twist too fast hitting, I could rip open the, 
the, the, the part of my liver that they had done the biopsy on and I could bleed out. And so I had to be super cautious. And um, the doctor's like, you know, you have to sit at home for three weeks and do no activity. And I said, well, listen, that's not how that's going to work. I'm, I'm a major league baseball player. I got, I'm trying to make a major league team. I, I, you know, I, I, and I, I hadn't even got to the big leagues yet. I'm like, I'm trying to make this team. And uh, he said, well, I'm sorry. And, you know, that's what you got to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, seven days before spring training, uh, my doctor cleared me. And, you know, I don't even know if I was really – I don't even know if the Oakland A's knew that I had not touched a baseball or a bat or a weight in a month leading up until spring training. But I had seven days. And I had been – I had done no baseball activity for a month, and then I had seven days to get ready for spring training. Oh, man. And, um, and I went to big league camp that year, and I made the team. You know, actually, I actually played great in spring training. Um, I, I hit – I think I hit three or four home runs. I had a bunch of – I had maybe 15 RBIs. I, I did really well in spring training. So – um, yeah, that was, that was it. I made the team. So the problem was Susan is that, and I don't know how many people knew about this when I played, I'm not sure you knew this, but the medication that I took for my liver, uh, was just awful. And it, it, it it's definitely not designed for professional athletes. Um, the prednisone alone, and I was on very, very high doses of prednisone, you know, 80 to hundred milligrams a day kind of stuff. And prednisone dehydrates your muscles. It makes you pull muscles. I had never pulled many muscles in my minor league career, but after I had prednisone, I started pulling hamstrings and obliques and, and calf muscles. And, uh, and I never ever had injuries like that before. And, um, you know, the Imuran also has some negative effects. It affects your vision. It affects some other things. The prednisone makes you gain weight. Uh, did you retain water and, um, it, it slows your metabolism down. So, you know, I was taking this medication trying to be a major league baseball player and trying to be one of the best athletes in the world. And, and my, and the medication was just fighting against me. So, you know, over the next couple of years, I gained 20 or 30 pounds, uh, even though I was working out as hard as I ever had, you know, I, my muscles started pulling. So, you know, unfortunately, even though I was able to make the big leagues with that disease, it definitely affected my career and my longevity and, and it, it shortened my opportunities. And, uh, but that was out of anyone's control. I don't blame anybody for that. It's just, it is what it is, and I'm grateful for the time that I had. Yeah, your overall health's more important. I mean, you've obviously got to deal with that. How are you doing now with uh, autoimmune hepatitis? I still take the medicine every day. I, I actually you know, took it several hours ago. So um, I get my liver enzymes checked uh, every two months, and um, I get a biopsy done every year. And I've kept, for the most part, you know, you have flare-ups here and there. So um, about a year ago, I had a flare-up where my liver enzymes climbed up a little bit. But um, over the last 10 years since that's happened, um, I've been able to keep it in pretty good control. And I've only had maybe a handful of flare-ups where I've had to, you know, take some different measures. But, um, you know, it still affects my weight. It affects my vision. It affects my body. Um, So the side effects of the medication are probably worse than what I'm dealing with with the autoimmune disease. Um, but you know, I, I, there's a lot of people in the world that deal with that same kind of thing. You know, they take a medication to prevent a certain illness or disease they have, but the medication actually can, you know, causes other side effects that are sometimes just as bad. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's the struggle I deal with. You know, I, I don't, um, you know, it's, it's not ideal, but I get to get up every day and spend time with my kids and I get to coach college baseball and I get to, I'm living a fun life and, um, I'm, I'm happy and I'm grateful and it could be worse. There's no doubt it could be worse. Now, since you're taking something that's got um, a component that's a little bit of a um, uh, suppressing your immune system, do you have to be extra careful right now during the coronavirus outbreak? Yeah, we do. So when, the, when all this stuff happened, um, yeah, I, I have to be one of the guys. 
have to social distance even more so I think than most people. And um, so my wife, my wife's a, uh, she's a, you remember her, but she's a go-getter. She's a, she's a fireball and she wants to be out and about and she loves to be social. And so this, this has been tough on her because, because of my autoimmune disease, she's having to social distance and, and, uh, and be on lockdown more than, than she would normally be. And, you know, a lot of people in our country are, but um, especially for us. So here in Greenville, we're in South Carolina, which, um, it hasn't been very bad down here, but Greenville, particularly where we live, is is a hot spot because it's uh, it's a pretty affluent area, and a lot of travel comes through here. Um, a lot of interstates run through here, and a lot of Fortune 500 companies have their bases here. So um, people don't know that about South Carolina. I think a lot of people probably think we live in trailers and and uh, you know ride four wheelers, but um, believe it or not, Greenville, South Carolina is a, a very affluent, uh, intelligent. Uh, high, highly qualified workforce and it's a pretty cool city so um, so it, it's we're a little nervous around here that that, that things could get worse um, so my wife and I actually took off and went to the beach a couple weeks ago and we, we spent about three weeks at the beach just to get away from people and that's been a really fun time because as a baseball player and a baseball coach uh, I can't tell you in the last 30 years how many times I've spent you know spring days at the beach you know usually I'm on a baseball field so yeah. Um, it, it's actually been some good family time to go to the beach and to get away. And, um, but we're trying to do our part and, and uh, social distance and, and do what we can to stay home and stay away from people so that we, uh, we can help defeat this virus. It's, it's nasty and it's scary. And um, you know, I'm just prayful, prayerful that everyone will make it through it. We'll be back in just a moment with more with Landon Powell. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Now, you mentioned that you're coaching baseball in South Carolina. You're the head coach at North Greenville University. How how did your coaching career start? Did you know that you wanted to coach all along while you were playing? Did you kind of have that in the back of your mind, or did somebody suggest it to you at some point that you might make a good coach? Yeah, so I I, I think I knew, um, you know, there was parts of me that thought when I was done playing baseball, I'd want to just get away from baseball and go do something different, you know, go into business, start a company, do something different. I, I was a business major in college and I always really, my dad was an entrepreneur. So I kind of, I always, you know, had an application for, for business owners and thought that that would be a fun thing to do a challenge. Um, so when I first retired from the Mets, um, well, uh, let me take you back. Actually, while I was with the Mets in AAA that year in Las Vegas, my last year playing in 2013, I kind of knew I was getting ready to retire. I, I saw the writing on the wall. I was ready to go home. I missed my family. And so we didn't have enough bullpen, I mean, enough BP throwers. Um, Wally Backman, who everyone knows, Wally was our manager. And he was having to throw BP every day and just getting worn out um, because the other two guys that were on our staff just, uh, you know, had arm issues or couldn't throw a lot or whatever it was. So I actually went to Wally and said, hey, this is kind of crazy, but. I'll throw group three at BP every day if you want me to. Like, I, I have no problem doing that. I love to throw BP. I'll probably be a coach one day, and I'd love to work on my BP. Um, you know, do you want me to start throwing BP every day? And I'll still go catch the game. It won't affect me. 
And he said, yeah. So I started throwing BP like the last month I played that year. Um, I throw BP every day. So that was kind of something that, you know, got me into coach. I was like, man, I, this is fun. I like to throw BP. I like, you know, even if I'm not playing anymore, I could still see myself being on the field every day and being a part of this game. So when I retired, I came home to South Carolina and I was kind of trying to weigh my options of what was next. And I had been home maybe a week. And Furman University, which is a Division One school here in Greenville, South Carolina, um, they called me. Their head coach had called, and he heard I had just retired. And he said, hey, do you want to come be an assistant coach? And, you know, I, I was like, well, I, got, I, was at the, I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting on a porch swing on my porch eating a popsicle with my, you know, five-year-old son. And, you know, four-year-old son. I was like, this, that, was, that was my to-do list for the day, was hang out with my four-year-old and eat a popsicle. So there wasn't anything else to do. So I was like, sure, I'll come coach college baseball. i got nothing else to do. Let's do it. So, I mean, that's how it started. It was just kind of a, a random phone call, and I got offered a job to go coach, and I jumped into it. And I started coaching college baseball at Furman University, and within a week of being there, I knew that's what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And I just – I had so many mentors that were coaches and guys that made big differences in my life as coaches, some with the Oakland A's, some in college. My, my dad was a high school coach growing up. So I really always had a big admiration for coaches and – when I started doing it myself and working with players and seeing them make adjustments and, and um, you know, show them something they had never heard and then watch them implement it and put it into effect and then have great results from it, it was a very fulfilling thing. And I realized my professional career had equipped me to help a lot of college players. And, um, you know, so I, I kind of got motivated to do that. And um, at the end of that season, after being at Furman for a year, uh, North Greenville University, another college here in town, called and offered me their head coaching job. And at the time, North Greenville was the bad news bears of college baseball. The year before I got there, they were eight and thirty-eight, oh, and boy. they were they were two and eighteen in the conference. They were one of the worst teams in college baseball, and they had a bad facility. And it was a it's a Bible college, a small private Bible college. So, not a whole lot of things that would entice a lot of great players to go there. And, um, but I, I felt like it was an empty canvas, a kind of a clean slate. And I, I felt like I could go in there and, and maybe do things a little differently than a lot of other college coaches and, and see if I could, you know, I had these ideas in my brain of why do we teach college baseball in an old school cookie cutter way? Um, you know, my experiences in minor league baseball were pretty cutting edge. And, and, you know, I noticed that the Oakland A's and other organizations are teaching 17, 18 year old Latin kids, you know, very high level of baseball. And then I look at, you know, the Amer American colleges and we're not teaching those same things to college kids here. And, and I never understood that, you know, um, I felt like our, you know, I felt like our youth baseball players here and our, our, our prep players were had enough aptitude to handle high level baseball. And if you really challenge them with information and knowledge that they could, they could make the adjustments. So I wanted to coach a college team, kind of like a minor league team and be very developmental and hands-on and, um, and so that was my mindset going into this thing. So I took the job, and uh, the first year we were we were picked to finish. We only had three and a half scholarships, and like I said, it was the bad news band in college baseball. So it was a pretty rough thing to, to jump into. But um, we were picked to finish dead last in the conference the first year. Tenth out of ten teams is were the preseason polls for our conference. And um, the first year we went out and won the conference championship. First Whoa. year. So it was it was incredible. It was a, a really fulfilling year in my life, and I felt like uh, I felt like I had helped these kids achieve something that would would be a life changing thing for them. I mean, these are these are college kids that had been beat up and abused the previous years, and and had been told they were no good and had no confidence in themselves. And to watch them 
you know, through the course of the season. It didn't happen overnight. I mean, we started the season two and seven, so it took some time. But, um, you know, to watch them by the end of the season be the best team in the league and win the conference championship and to go to an NCAA regional, um, it was incredible. And uh, so that just yeah, motivated me even more, and, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. Since then, we've, are, we've just gradually gotten better every year. Uh, the following year, I think we were 35 and 15, and then we were – you know, the next year we were 46 and 11, no, 46 and 10, and we were ranked number one in the country. Um, and this is, a, we're, we're a division two school. So, right. um, you know, um, and then the, so, and then the next year we were 45 and 11 and ranked number one in the country again. And then this was my, my, this year we were, before the season got canceled because of coronavirus, I think we were 20 and five and we were, we were ranked number one in the country this year. So we've been ranked number one in the country three years in a row and we've won um, three conference championships in five years and, um, it's been fun. We've had a lot of success. We've had 12 guys drafted um, since I've been at North Greenville. Um, actually had a guy drafted by the Oakland A's mm-hmm. named John Jones. Yep. He's a switch-in catcher, and he's in he's in A-ball with Oakland. He's a good player. Um, so we've it's been fun. It's uh, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. Yeah, that's amazing. That's ama- the success you've had there is just remarkable. Um, really, it's also it sounds very Oakland A's, particularly that first year, starting off slow and then finishing strong and winning the conference um which of the a's coaches or development people did you kind of turn to right did you was it did you call anybody or was it more just kind of remembering things that people had taught you did did you get any good advice from any of your the people you worked with at oakland in any level you know not not so much while i was coaching but uh, obviously a lot of the stuff i learned in my career as a player were things i took with me and um, so I think all the coaches that I played for had impacts one way or another. You know, when I first retired, actually Oakland was one of the, you know, Oakland reached out to me, Keith Lippin and, and um, Todd Steverson called me on a conference call and, and they were offering me an opportunity to come coach with Oakland. And, um, you know, it just wasn't a good time for me because I just lost my daughter and the whole reason for retiring was to go home and be with my family. So uh, signing up to be a coach with Oakland and packing my suitcase and being gone for the next 10 months again, just didn't fit what I was trying to accomplish with my family. So um, I, I love the A's organization and I would have loved to coach in that organization, but it just wasn't the right time in my life. So that's what led me to college ball. But guys, you know, I, I can tell you like Todd Steverson trick, you know, the way he handled his team, the, the relationship he had with his players, you know, he wasn't a authoritative dictator type coach. Um, he, he would, he knew he had a good way of coming alongside of his players and had a very servant mentality. And, you know, he just kept it cool with his guys. And um, he, he didn't sugarcoat anything. He, he, he dropped a lot of truth bombs. He'd tell you like it is. So the, the, I took a lot of that from him. With my players, I, don't, I, I tell them like it is. I don't want to shoot anybody in the toes. I want to make sure they know the full truth and, and know what they're dealing with. I think honesty is one of the best things you can give a college kid. And, uh, and so I think I got some of that from Trick. Um, Scott Emerson was a guy I spent a lot of my time in the minor leagues with. And, and Emo taught me a ton about pitch calling and pitch selection. Um, you know, I give a lot of credit to him. You know, I feel like I call a great game, and that's something that helped me as a catcher in the big leagues. But it's an asset for me as a coach now. I call all of our pitches during games, and and it's been a big advantage for our team. So I, I can I can credit Emo with a lot of that, uh, a lot of the pitch calling. Um, Ron Romanic, a lot of the things he did with with arm care and and our pitching staff and throwing programs. You know, I stole a lot of things from him that have helped. Um, you know, hitting. Uh, Brian McCarn, um, he taught me a drill called the. Uh, it was a front toss drill we used to do on the field every day, and we we'd call pull it the right way. So shoot it up the middle, pull it the right way, and it was teaching us how to drive the ball in the middle of the field with backspin and maximize the carry on the ball. And 
and try to prevent topspin and sidespin and hooks. And we wanted to really drive the ball at backspin. So uh, Brian McCarn taught me a lot of that stuff. And I, I use that drill every single week with my college team. We do it every Monday wow. um, without fail. So, um, you know, so there's a bunch of those guys and, and the, the list can go on, um, you know, that made impacts on my career in the minor leagues and taught me a lot of things. And, and um, I've been able to take a lot of that stuff with me to my own coaching career. Yeah. It must have been a very, very frustrating, obviously, this spring, having to sort of just all of a sudden, like, say goodbye to everybody. What, what was that like with a, you know, you've got a team and it's a bunch of players and you're all close and you're all in it together and, and aiming for a goal. And then suddenly you've all got to go your separate ways for a while. Yeah, it definitely, it, it, it honestly just kind of hit us out of nowhere. Um, I mean, we didn't see it coming. You know, we were, you know, when you're coaching college baseball or you're involved in any kind of sport in a season, you're, you know, you're so involved in that that you're, sometimes you're not really paying attention to what's going on in the outside world. And, you know, we were in the middle of our season and, you know, we were doing really well, ranked number one in the country. We had a big game against Newberry College, uh, another school here in South Carolina. And I think we were ranked that maybe one or two in the country, and they were ranked like 15th or something. And so it was a big matchup for us on a Wednesday night. Um, I think it was March 10th is the date. And we went down there, and we beat them 5 nothing. It was a big game. And we got on the bus and started driving home. And all of a sudden, social media is blowing up that the Ivy League had just canceled their season. And that was probably the first moment I was like, oh, okay, this is real. Like, this is happening. Like, this is um, – it's getting ready to affect everything. And the NBA canceled their season that same night. Um, cause I think that was the same day, maybe that the, the jazz Utah jazz players had been diagnosed. And, and so within, you know, within 48 hours, everything was canceled, yep. um, for us. I mean, we practiced the next day on a Thursday and I got a, uh, a text during the middle of our practice, the season was canceled. Oh. So we just, we just, uh, practiced the rest of the day and had fun and enjoyed ourselves and tried to laugh as much as we could and enjoy the last moments on the field with each other. And then, um, at the enterprise, I had to break it to the guys that it was canceled. The season was over and, you know, guys are crying seniors, obviously a lot of, just a lot of guys. I mean, it, you know, for us being ranked as one of the top teams in the country, it, it, I think it hit even harder because we all had huge aspirations and felt like we had a chance to be a national championship type team. You know, we had lost the year before in the 14th inning of a game four to three to go to the world series oh. and, and, and just felt like this was our redemption year. And we were, you know, we had so many players back from last year's team and, um, so it just, it hit hard and, um, you know, all I could do was just console those guys and, and, and hug them and let them know I love them and, and, uh, just tell them that, you know, for me as a Christian, um, God's got a plan and you got to understand that, that something positive is going to ha- come out of this. It, it's, uh, we don't know what that's going to be right now, but, um, you know, the sun will come up at some point and, you know, we'll get back on a baseball field and, and we'll get to, you know, what my hope is, is that all athletes and all coaches and, and fans that when we do get back to normality and we're able to continue with our, our lives as athletes and coaches that we just cherish every day even more because we know now what it's like to not have it. And, you know, that's something I learned as a player with all my injuries is, you know, I had the, I had my career ripped away from me several different times and it just made, it just made every game and every pitch and every at bat more valuable when I got back mm-hmm. uh, and I got to cherish those moments more. So, you know, hopefully that's a good, that's something good that can come out of this is that when, when we're on the backside of this and everyone's back to normality that maybe, maybe people will, really cherish and value the moments that they have and on you know playing college sports or professional sports or whatever it is yeah you you would hope that that's the case how many seniors on your team i feel so bad for them 
so we had nine seniors, oh. um, but we also had uh, three juniors that, that were graduating um, that had been redshirted, you know, redshirt juniors. So, mm. uh, but the NCAA has uh, passed a rule that all seniors um, can come back and get their year of eligibility back. Actually, all athletes, all spring athletes at the Division II level are, begin, are being granted another year of eligibility. Oh, so if a kid was a sophomore this year, he'll be a sophomore again next year at, at, um, eligibility-wise. So. Uh, my my nine seniors all have the uh, option to come back. They they all can come back for another year, and um, and that's a great thing the NCAA did. That's relieved a lot of heartbreak. And um, yeah. I have eight of my nine coming back. So one of my guys is graduating and moving on and getting the job, but the other eight seniors are actually coming back. And I was surprised by some of that because these are some guys that are graduating and they could easily go get jobs or go to grad school or do some other things. But um, you know, they're all choosing to go to grad school at North Greenville and come back and play for us, which I, to me is, is, uh, is a compliment of our program that they want to come back and spend more time at our university and at our baseball program. So um, I'm, gr- I'm grateful that the NCAA is allowing those guys to come back, and I'm excited and hopeful that they'll be able to get on the field next year and, and uh, finish their careers the right way on the field. Yeah, and hopefully with like a kind of a better outlook for the draft too because obviously the draft's probably going to be affected here coming up, which uh... – it's also also weird for all these players. Um, so Saturday, the ten year anniversary. You have any plans to call Dallas maybe during the week? Reminisce at all? Is uh, will, will it be on your mind Saturday, the tenth anniversary? Oh, definitely. Every year, um, I, I mean, Dallas and I always either text or talk or whatever on the day of. And it's something short and quick. And Dallas and I stay in touch. I mean, I think you know <laughs> we could not have come from more different walks of life and have different backgrounds and childhoods and, um, and, and we were different people. I mean, you knew, you knew both of us well, and, and, and you would probably easily say that Dallas and I were totally different. <laughs> we were polar opposites. Um, but I love that guy. And I, I did as a player, um, um, we were friends then and, uh, we still are friends. We, we stay in touch every couple months. We'll, we'll connect and talk or, or text. And, um, he actually came and visited me here in South Carolina several years ago and came and talked to my team and, and spent a day at practice with us. And, um, so, uh, I'll definitely be calling him Saturday and and uh, and, and reminding him of of uh, how he could have never done it without me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I always think of you guys as a team for that, for sure. Absolutely. Um, Landon Powell, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, but I really appreciate you joining us on Ace Plus. The fact that you're doing so well coaching in the college ranks is absolutely perfect. Well, I appreciate that. It's um, I'm very grateful for my time in Oakland and the A's organization and all the things that they provided me with. And um, all that stuff is, is, is still, you know, allowing me to stay in the game of baseball and make an impact on, on kids' lives. And, and so uh, I'm grateful for, for the A's for that opportunity. And, and I'm, I'm always glad to talk with you, Susan. You were always a first-class person in our clubhouse and a valued member of our organization. And, and I appreciate everything you always did for the team. So it's great to connect and, and, uh, and reminisce with you. Oh, you're too kind. Well, Landon, well, hopefully we can catch up in person sometime. Take good care of yourself and your family. And thanks for joining us on Ace Plus. Awesome. Take, take care. Our thanks again to Landon Powell for joining us on Ace Plus. You can hear part two of this interview next week. Our producer today was G. Allen Johnson. Thanks again for listening. Ace Plus is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Support Ace Plus and all of the Chronicle's journalism by signing up for a Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod.